Amen. I want to thank Eric for that powerful reminder that we are about to be listening to the words of the Lord, certainly not because I'm speaking them, but because they are coming from the Word of God. So I will ask you to open to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be looking at this text that our brother read for us just a few moments ago. What a blessing we have to be able to be together, to meet in this place in relative comfort. Even in the midst of this pandemic, our numbers are up here. We're grateful to see everyone that's present. What a great encouragement it is. Those online as well are an encouragement to us. We're thankful for that. We can thank God for His plan to bring us together in one body to worship Him on the first of the week. We know that uh, our brethren uh, all over the world this very day have come together to worship and glorify our God. And we do that through these songs we've been singing, through the remembrance of the sacrifice that He offered on our behalf as we partake of the Lord's Supper, through the offering of the goods that He's given to us as we return them to Him for the work that the, the church will be doing in these local places where we're gathering, and through the study of His Word as we'll be doing now. And if you're reading along in the, the daily readings that our congregation is doing here, this week we'll be getting into Matthew chapter 26 on Friday. I'm going to get ahead of the reading this time. Uh, but I'd like for us to analyze this text. We're going to be seeing when Jesus does go in for His uh, final uh, opportunity to, to dine with his disciples. It is the Passover feast, and it's during this Passover feast that he establishes the Lord's Supper. But I want to talk about this, uh, this meeting just before he establishes the Lord's Supper, this conversation he has with his disciples here on this first day of the feast of the Passover. And this question that comes up as he tells them about what's about to happen, that one of them is going to betray him, what a sad moment this must be. We see that they were exceedingly sorrowful, my version says in verse 22. And they all began to ask, Lord, is it I? And we can imagine ourselves perhaps seated around this table with the Lord in this great moment of expectation as they've come together for this Passover feast. And he tells them that news. We find out here from the text in verse 17 that it's on the first day or on the first of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We know from... The book of Exodus, exactly when that is, it's the 14th of Abib. By this time, the name of that month has been changed to Nisan. But if we go to Exodus chapter 12, we'll see what the Lord has said about this day for them. Exodus chapter 12, we'll read a few verses from there to kind of set the scene. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Down in verse 5, he's talking about the lamb that they're going to take, the Passover lamb. And he says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And if you'll move down to verses 14 through 17. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which, is, uh, but that which everyone must eat. That only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day... I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. 
Certainly this is a high watermark in the year for the Israelites. It is the beginning for them. This is the new year. It's the first of, the, of their months. It's the, the new beginnings are going to be on their mind. You think about how we look at new year and we're talking about our resolutions and the things we're going to do better. We look back at the things we could have done better the last year. So this is their new year. It's their beginning of months. And they're together with Jesus. And there's this excitement in the air because they've found the Messiah. And so they're together with him at this Passover meal that he knows is actually the end. It's coming to the end of his time among them, at least as he's walking with them on the earth. But they're thinking of these great new beginnings as they've come triumphantly marching into Jerusalem, everyone recognizing him as the king. Hosanna to the one who comes in the name of King David. There's this time of new beginnings, just thinking about these new things. This day is a national high Sabbath of preparation. That is, God gave them the day off so they could prepare all things that would be necessary for this feast. Now, the only work they could do was the work of preparation. But that's what they are to be doing. And so the disciples have asked, where is it that we're going to prepare the Passover? And Jesus has already arranged. In fact, when they go to this place, this upper room, it's already laid out and prepared for them. They just have to finish up the final preparations and wait for the Lord to come. And here, he's come to be among them now on this very special holy day that's been set aside. But there's something interesting in Exodus. This day is a time for the removing of leaven. It's a time for getting rid of those things which are leavening agents. And we see that that term by the New Testament time has been synonymous with sin. Look at Luke chapter 12 for just a moment. Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together, so they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Another point, he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees and of, of Herod, their, their false doctrine, their hypocritical attitudes, this idea of sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in the context of this man who has a relationship with his father's wife, and needs to be expelled from among their, their number because he has not repented. Paul tells them in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 5, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." <laughs> And so this concept that leaven represents sin is well understood already in the first century, and Paul fleshes that out somewhat here among the Corinthian brethren. And it's interesting in this context at this table where we know that the betrayer is sitting there with them, and Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me this night. He will tell them in John chapter 13, verses 10 and 11, as he begins to wash their feet, and Peter objects, and says, well, then, then you're going to have to wash my whole body then if I want to be a part with you. And Jesus says, no. Not all of you need to be washed. He says, but not all of you are clean. And he's talking about Judas there. There's a purging out here of the leaven. And this is also going to be on their minds in the context of this conversation that Jesus is having with them. So this is meant to be a joyous feast. They're remembering their deliverance from their slavery in Egypt as Israel has been brought out by God. And yet Jesus gives them this deeply distressing news as he said in verse 2, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. But this distressing news is even worse because he says it's going to be 
by one of you, <laughs> by one of those who's the closest to him and are sitting there in this very intimate meal with Jesus. He says very simply, one of you will betray me. Surely, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, I'm not mistaken about this. This is not the first time that Jesus has mentioned this betrayal that's going to happen. He's talked about his crucifixion before them several times. Look back at some of these texts quickly with me. Matthew chapter 16. We won't read the whole text now. We're going to talk about some of this later. But look at verses 21 and 22. From that time, this is Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Well, he's just said, you're the Lord, you're, you're the Christ. And now he says, but you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Jesus then puts him behind and says, get behind me, Satan. We'll see that in a moment. But this is the first time he's mentioned, at least among all of the apostles, the fact that he's going to be put to death when he gets to Jerusalem. But he didn't mention his betrayal yet. But in chapter 17, verse 22, the second time he talks about being put to death, look how he says it. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. He's going to be betrayed? Now, we thought maybe he's going to be taken by force, but he's going to be betrayed. And yet it's still kind of generic at this point. We go into chapter 20 now of Matthew, and he mentions a third time, starting at verse 17. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. He's given them a little bit more information every time, but these last two times he said, it's going to be an act of betrayal. Someone's going to turn him in. And of course, in the mind of the apostles, they're thinking, those rascally Pharisees, those terrible religious leaders who've rejected you from the beginning, surely they're going to betray you into the hands of the Romans who are in the power to put someone to death. It is interesting that each time, as Jesus mentioned, that he was going to be crucified. Now, he's with his closest friends, the ones that he's leaning on for support, for encouragement as he goes to do this very thing that he's been sent to do. Each time they're thinking of themselves. Peter says, not so, Lord, that'll never happen. When Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan, he says, you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. If I am the Christ and I'm saying this is what's going to happen, it's because this is what God says is going to happen, Peter. But Peter's thinking, I don't want my friend to be crucified. I don't want the one that I understand to be this coming king who's going to restore all things to Israel. If they kill him, then what? He's not thinking of the things of God. He's thinking of the things of men. And it's a temptation to Jesus. And he says, get behind me, Satan. The second time when he mentioned it, all the apostles began to argue among themselves, who's going to be the greatest among us? It's almost like they didn't notice what he said. Or maybe, well, he's going to be taken out of the way. Now which of, which of us is going to step up? <laughs> and they're ashamed when Jesus asked them, what were you talking about in Mark chapter 9? Because they've been arguing which of them would be the greatest. And shortly after the third time he mentions it is when the mother of James and John comes up to Jesus. I don't know if she had the idea or if they did, but they begin to ask, will you give us what we ask? And we sit on your right hand and left hand when you come into your kingdom. They're thinking of themselves. 
Every time Jesus says, I'm about to be put to death by betrayal. And you can imagine how hard this must be now when Jesus says, the one who's going to betray me is one of you. It's one of you. Now, this is the first time that their betrayal has been mentioned in this way, although it has been indicated, and surely this went over their heads. In John chapter 6, when so many of the disciples began sort of to fall away, these hard sayings of Jesus, in verse 70, when he asked them if they wanted to go away as well, Peter says, no, you've, you've got the words of life, you're the Christ. Jesus then says in verse 70, but did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Are you sure that you want to follow me? I might have made a mistake here among you. Jesus didn't make any mistakes, and we'll see that in a moment as well. But he does mention that in the hearing, I believe, of Judas. And we'll talk about that as well in just a moment. But it's the first time he tells them openly, one of you is going to betray me. Actually, this is fulfillment of the prophecy regarding the Messiah. Jesus has been telling them all along that's who he is. When Peter says, you are the Christ, he understands that's who Jesus is. What has been said about the Messiah? In Psalm 41, we'll look at a couple of the Psalms. There's a direct quote from it in, in uh, John 13. But Psalm 41, verses 7 through 11. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. How telling. When Jesus says, it's, it's one who dips his bread with me in the dish. One of my trusted friends, of course, they were all dipping their bread in the dish. John makes it clear that it happened sort of exactly at the moment that Judas was doing so. In John chapter 13 and verse 18, we see the fulfillment of this particular psalm. I do not speak concerning all of you, uh, Jesus says. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. There's one of you that's unclean among me. And in Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14, It is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, as, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throne. And here is Jesus among these men who were his colleagues, his equals in the sense that they are all together in this work that he's doing. That's who's going to betray him. In truth, for these prophecies to be fulfilled. It needed only to be an Israelite, a brother in the national sense. It had, that's how the, where the betrayal could have come from. But it is amazing to me that Jesus chose Judas to be not just a brother in the national sense, but in the closest sense among these 12 of the inner circle, the apostles. And what a blessing that was really for Judas. Because Judas could know better than anybody else of the kind of character of forgiveness that Jesus had and the grace that he was extending to so many. And he offered ample opportunity for Judas' repentance. We already mentioned John chapter 6 when he says, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? You think Judas wasn't already thinking about that at that point? If Judas was aware already of what he's going to be planning, there's some indication that maybe that plan came to him a little bit later. But in John 13, here at this intimate moment when Jesus is going to wash their feet, Look at the interaction between him and Judas, because at this point, Judas is aware 
of what's going to happen. Jesus has been aware for a while. And look at this loving interaction between Jesus and Judas. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now we think he loved the 11. (laughs) That's not what this text shows. He loved his own, these that were with him. Supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He washed Judas' feet also. <laughs> the one who's going to betray him into the hands of men and kill him. He washed his feet. And as he's doing it, Verse 11 says, he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. Judas heard that. Verses 27 and 28 of John 13, now after the piece of bread, who's dipping with him in the bowl now, he mentions that, Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. I want you to notice all of these opportunities where Judas could have said, forgive me, Lord. (laughs) He could have stopped, he could have repented at that point. But there's other opportunities for repentance. Back in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus' interaction with Judas was not terminal. Matthew 26 and verse 50, when Judas has arranged now to come and arrest Jesus in the garden, when he arrives, Jesus says to him, Friend, why have you come? They came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Judas could have said, Forgive me, Lord. But he didn't. In Luke chapter 22, verse 48, this is so painful to read. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas was so intimate with Jesus that he could come up to him and kiss him. And he says, are you repairing me with a kiss? And yes, he was. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, Peter had already said to Jesus in Judas' hearing, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Judas knew that about Jesus. Jesus was saying, go beyond. Forgive all. (laughs) Judas had an opportunity to know of this character and what ample opportunity for repentance that he had. And really, even betraying him to the cross, that could have been forgiven. Isn't it Jesus who, while he's being nailed to the cross, says, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing? Judas could have received that kind of forgiveness. Isn't it Jesus who, after Peter denies him three times at the last saying, God, strike me dead if I know this man? Didn't Jesus take him aside and three times offer him repentance and forgiveness in John chapter 21? Isn't it in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, as Peter's preaching, he says, you took him by lawless hands and crucified him. You're guilty of killing the Christ. And then when they say, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Couldn't that have happened to Judas? Absolutely, it could have happened to Judas. Even putting him on the cross where he would pay the sins for Judas if he had but gone to Christ as Peter did, He could have been forgiven. Jesus offered him ample opportunity for repentance. But he told them outright, one of you will betray me. And their reaction is so bittersweet. 
as they began, each one to say to him, Lord, is it I? Each of them in turn. It's amazing to me that their first reaction, you know, we, we look at this story from the end of things and we would have all gone, Judas! But they didn't do that. Instead of accusing one another and pointing fingers, they all looked at themselves, Lord, is it me? Am, am I going to be the one who's going to betray you? What a great question. That's where we need to begin, is examining ourselves. It's Jesus who taught them that principle. In Matthew chapter 7, weren't they there when Jesus was teaching one, a verse that we use so often? Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You think they were paying attention? Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And they all thought, is it going to be me? Instead of, is it going to be him? <laughs> what a heart they've developed in their time with Jesus. Now, they're not perfect. They make so many mistakes. Here going forward, they'll still make mistakes. But they've been changed by their being close to Jesus. Are, are we? <laughs> is our first reaction an accusation when something goes wrong? Or is it, what have I done? <laughs> what could I be doing better? What could I be doing different? Am I a part of the solution or am I part of the problem? We need to really honestly analyze that. Think about that when something goes not the way we expected, when we're shocked by what's happening, is it something I'm doing? We have a tendency to always want to point to the other person. There is a need in the body for absolute growth, for us to be strengthened as we serve together. When we are weak, we weaken the whole body because the whole body has to give its energy toward that weaker member. And that weaker member is not contributing. It's only absorbing energy. Think about when we're actually sick. When you have a headache, the rest of your body doesn't want to do anything except maybe get a pill. When you've got a fever, you're laid out. Even though parts of your body could function, their function is to take care of that part that's sick so everything can get back to, together. We need to consider that. Is it me? We need a real and honest self-examination as we serve in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul said, examine yourselves whether you're in the faith. Now that's a, that's a need. But look at Galatians chapter 6. We think of this text as we consider going to help someone who stumbled in a sin. But I want you to notice the inward focus so much on this as we're going to help someone else that's obviously having a struggle. The focus is also on me. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. And we're supposed to be helping each other, but we've got to be strong enough to bear our own load if we're going to then go over and help someone else to bear theirs. So often, sometimes we, we treat the church as, well, you guys aren't taking care of me. <laughs> What's going on? How come you're not helping here? And then when something happens, well, you didn't do what you're supposed to do. That's not what happened among the apostles here. Jesus is about to be betrayed, and they all start looking at themselves. <gasps> is it going to be me? <laughs> Am I betraying the Lord as I'm trying to serve him? in this body here. None of them said, Lord, is it Judas? <laughs> to us, it seems so obvious. 
To them it wasn't. He looked like all the other apostles, didn't he? <laughs> they were fooled. It's amazing. You know, his name means praise or glory of God. What? Nobody wants to name their kid Judas anymore, but that used to be a really common name. That was a good name. We've seen that in the book of Romans. That's what the Jews prided themselves on, was being Jews, because that name means glory or praise of God, but now it means something so backward. He was trusted with the money bag, we're told in John chapter 12, and also here in John 13, when he says, what you do, do quickly. They all thought he meant go buy the rest of the supplies. He's got the money. In John 12, when that flask of alabaster was broken, and that woman was anointing Jesus' head and his feet, they all began to complain, we could have given that money to the poor. It says that Judas is the one who started that complaint. Not because he really cared for the poor, because he was stealing money from the money bag. If they had sold that, he might have got his 30 pieces of silver instead of having to sell Jesus for them. He was a thief, but they didn't know that. They trusted him with their money. That's how much they put on this man. It's possible to look faithful, to be involved I'm doing stuff with the church and yet still let Satan enter our hearts against the will of Christ. We need to be careful about this. These are the apostles. Judas was an apostle. So in John chapter 13, we're already told that Satan had put it into Judas' heart. And then in verse 27, Satan entered him. He put it in Judas' heart and Judas kept that idea there and eventually invited Satan all the way in. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira the text before, when we see their terrible, tragic mistake, their terrible, tragic sin, the text shortly before that said they were all filled with the Holy Spirit as they prayed that God would give them this boldness to speak. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 5, when Peter is rebuking Ananias and Sapphira, he says, how did you let Satan fill your heart to lie against the Spirit of God? You haven't lied to men, but to God. Satan had filled his heart, even after the Spirit had done so a short chapter before. These are people that were serving Christ. They were active and yet let Satan in. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30, that among themselves men would rise up speaking perverse things and try to drag away part of the flock. The evil can come within our own hearts. So we'd better be asking, Lord, is it I, if we want to keep that away. That's the reaction they gave. But I want you to notice something about what they said here. Lord, is it I? It's not just a term of respect that they're using with Jesus here. For one thing, they recognize that he's the one accusing them, and he knows their hearts better than they do. In Matthew chapter 9, when some of the scribes and Pharisees were about to accuse Jesus, they thought in their hearts, this man's a blasphemer. And he says, why did you think that? <laughs> he knew their hearts. <laughs> Psalm 139 famously speaks of God looking deep into our hearts. This is what we need. We need to be open with ourselves because God already knows. We need to be honest in confessing. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Psalm 139 verse 23. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, help me. They know He knows their hearts better than they do. The truth is that how we respond to his word, how we respond to his accusations, Jesus said, you're going to betray me. They could have said, uh-uh, you know what you're talking about. Jesus is showing us all the ways that we might betray him. As we read through this, we better say, I've got to watch that one. 
Lord, is that me? Hebrews 4.12, he opens it all before us. This word is, is a double-edged sword, and we ought to let it do surgery so it doesn't have to do the killing in the end. John chapter 14 and verse 15, this very simple thing that Jesus says. What a test. John chapter 14 and verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Verses 23 and 24. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So do we love him? Well, there's a simple test. Are we keeping his words? Are we doing what he says? Have we allowed him to be the one that guides us? The truth is, if we are wrong, if we're in error, the only hope we have for changing is because of him. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, he makes that transformation in us as we renew our minds according to his word and his will. And I love the way this is put in 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is the work of the evangelist, and we tend to think this is for other people. <laughs> This is written first for Timothy. The evangelist will be doing this work, but he needs to analyze himself based on this. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. Lord, is it I? If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. May the Lord grant us repentance. If we ask, Lord, is it I? And the answer is, yes, it is. May the Lord grant us repentance. It comes from Him. They come to believe that He is Christ and Lord. That's exactly what Peter said. Right before he said, not so, Lord, it'll never happen to you, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they began to roll off, oh, John the Baptist re resurrected from the dead, or Elijah, or one of the prophets. And he says, yeah, men say that, but who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonas, Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father, you've been looking at the Scriptures, you've been looking at me, and you've put the two together, and you've seen that I am the Christ. In John chapter 6, when he was asking if they wanted to go away, that's what Peter said, you are the Lord and Christ. You are the one who has the words of life. Why would we go anywhere else? I think it's amazing that we see, that's exactly what Peter says later when he preaches in Acts chapter 2, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified both, Lord and and Christ. Those are the two things he points out. And then famously, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. I want to read this verse instead of just quoting from it. 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. There's a textual variant which I like better that says, sanctify the Lord as God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Is the Lord sanctified as God in your heart? Is Jesus God in your heart. That's what Peter had come to believe. That's where Peter stood. And that's what he taught people to do. But did you notice this? The last verse in our text. Judas reveals something of his heart here. Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. Most of these apostles were sorrowful, exceeding sorrowful. To imagine betraying a beloved friend, a beloved teacher, this man who they've been with for so long, it is hard to imagine a betrayal like that. And yet, some still do betray the Christ. Even today, we see in Hebrews, there's a couple of texts that talk about this idea of betraying the Spirit of grace, betraying what God has given us. 
Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame, they reject Jesus. That's what he says here. Betraying the Christ. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verses 28 and 29. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? People betray Christ today? <laughs> Absolutely. The Hebrew writer was saying those very people were in danger of doing so. And what was it going to be for them? This idea that they might betray this man that they loved was really terrifying to them. But you know, it's easy to betray Christ when church or religion is our focus. When we're not thinking about Jesus, we're thinking about the church. We're thinking about some movement that we're a part of. We may begin to think, I don't really care that much about all that. But when we have sanctified Jesus as Lord in our hearts, that makes all the difference. Luke 6, verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do the things that I say? Am I Lord or not? Are you just saying that? But here's what Judah saw Jesus as. Rabbi, good teacher. He's okay, but I've, I've studied under others as well. And some of them, I like what they say a little bit better. I believe Judas was disappointed in who Jesus turned out to be. He's this Messiah, but he's not the Messiah that Judas was waiting for, who's going to kick Rome out and take over and reestablish the Jews as the nation of all nations. Well, that is what Jesus did, but not physically like Judas was expecting, not like most were expecting. He did remove Rome from the hearts. He removed the reign of Satan from men's hearts and set up an everlasting kingdom. But in the parallel in Matthew chapter 7, this is the way... He describes this question of whether or not he's Lord. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If you have not sanctified Jesus as Lord in your heart, he also doesn't know you. If you don't know him and love him and are doing his will, then he doesn't know you. That's what he says here. Lord, is it I? What a bittersweet question to ask. What doubt must have filled their minds as they're hearing the one they've come to trust say, one of you is going to betray me. And yet, at this time that should have been a joyous occasion, they learn that they're going to be involved in putting Jesus on the cross. Judas heard the same condemnation. Judas was among those asking, is it I? Well, there's a little clue to where he thought of Jesus here. If we think of Jesus just as somebody who can teach us some interesting new things, we put him on a level there with Buddha or with some other great teacher. We love coming to Bible class because, boy, I've just never learned all these things before. But we don't put any of it into practice. And he's not Lord and Christ in our hearts then we're going to suffer the same condemnation that Judas did. Peter repented, and God's desire 
for us is that as we look at lessons like these, we recognize the opportunity to ask the question, is it I? And to repent if the answer is yes. Jesus went just as it is written of him. This is what God had designed for him. He paid the sins for Judas. On that cross, Judas could have still gone to him and said, Lord, forgive me. Jesus would have forgiven him. He forgave one of the thieves that was there. He would have forgiven Judas. He paid the price for our sins as well in that moment on the cross. And as he resurrected to prove that all the things he had said were true, he's given us an opportunity to take advantage of the gospel, to repent because Jesus paid the price for our sins. Won't you let us help you to repent and live? Judas didn't live, and he's suffering eternally because of it. But you don't have to follow Judas' course. If, as we've been reading today, you're wondering, is it I? Am I the one betraying Christ? If you call yourself a Christian, but you see that you're not living the way Jesus taught you to live, won't you let us help you? Won't you let us strengthen your hands, strengthen you so this body of believers can be strong and growing together? Ask honestly, is it I? And if you're not a Christian, or if you don't know if you are, ask honestly, is it I? Am I betraying what Christ did on that cross because I don't have the courage to make the decision to live for him? If you would sanctify him as Lord and Christ, let us help you to do that today. If you're willing to confess that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to come forward repentant of your sins and have those washed away in baptism, you can start today honestly serving Christ, and we'd love to help you do that. Whatever your need might be, whatever the gospel call says to you, make it known to us as we stand and sing this song to encourage your obedience.